Welcome to the God is Not an Asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your host, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. Well, everybody, welcome back to God is Not an Asshole uh, with David Moore and Carrie Connolly and our very special guest, uh, Kyle T. Mays, who is an assistant professor of African-American studies and American Indian studies and history at UCLA. Um, He is a transdisciplinary scholar of urban history and studies, Afro-Indigenous studies, and contemporary popular culture. Uh, We're going to talk about his voice in his book, uh, his most recent book, An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. And as we get ready to to do that, I must point out that he is also the author of Hip-Hop Beats, Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity, and Hip-Hop in Indigenous North America. Uh, this is exciting for me uh, to, you know, to to finally meet Kyle, and that's a book I will have to get to. I have, and, and I want to say to Kyle, the reason that w- w- how I am aware of your work is because it was algorithmically recommended to me. You know how you read books, and then it says yeah. you might be interested in, and yes, they were right. Uh, I was and am interested in your work. I really appreciate it. And um, I want to, right off the bat, because this is a recent development, ask you as an uh, an indigenous person, what thoughts you might have on the Vatican's recent renunciation of the doctrine of discovery. And many of our listeners might not even know what that is, but uh, I, I know that you do. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting because, you know, looking, scouring social media and hearing people's responses to that, this is a big deal, this is important and useful. I mean, I guess as far as representation goes, it's interesting. Um, it, I, and I don't even mean to disparage the Pope or um, Proclamation because I think they have a place, like apologies certainly have a place. But when we talk about five, six hundred years of various forms of violence, genocide, ongoing colonialism, an apology in in that sense is kind of meaningless. An apology without actual action. And I don't mean this is uh, like transformational um, against carceral logics, you know, 101, right? You apologize with action. And it's up to the people harmed and how they want to deal with that apology. So the doctrine of discovery, 
there's really two iterations related to that history in the U.S. So first, I think um, off the top of my head, 1493, the Papal Bull, they're saying you had you now have the ability to take land outside of Europe, basically basically within the Americas, which led to various forms of genocide, slavery, and completely changed the modern world. Going uh, into the 19th century within the U.S., it was a fundamental part of um, identifying the notion of domestic dependent nations. That is, indigenous nations who are considered sovereign based on their treaty relationship with the United States. The doctrine of discovery was utilized in a Supreme Court decision uh, in the 1820s to say that they are uh, wards of the United States. So it has a long history and it has contemporary consequences in relationship between tribal nations and the United States government. So again, apologies are, are fascinating and useful, especially from large institutions. But in this case, apologies without returning land are to me pretty fruitless and meaningless in a certain sense. And maybe that's harsh, but to me, that's the reality. And I, I just remembered how, uh, how um, the celebrated uh, liberal Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, cited the doctrine of discovery uh, right. in withholding land. So, yep, right. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't really have a place for that in my imagination, actually. But uh, Carrie, you that were going to say that something. was his read. Well, I was I was looking up the information to to cite exactly that that happened in two thousand five. Um, she, it was about a title to the land occupied by indigenous people. Yeah, so I was just I was just trying to look that up and see when that happened. It was as recently as two thousand five. But David, you just said a a, a word that has I, I've been uh, as I've tried to learn more about you um, since David told me about you. I wanted to. Um, read some of, of your work. And the thing, the word that keeps coming to my mind is imagination, right? Because, um, I really, that's, that's where I'm, where my fascination is when it comes to how do we create a a world of justice? I think that we're lacking imagination in so many ways. The imagination is going to come from the collective. What, what is your imagination for how we actually usher in true liberation and true justice, true justice. Um, what does that look like? Because I feel like it, it has to be something completely different than where we are. And that's one of the reasons why we, we have such a difficult time making the leap. So what does your imagination tell you? Well, for me, let's start with the goal. The goal is really twofold to return land to indigenous nations and to end the consequences of settler capitalism, racial capitalism, uh, and anti-Blackness that impact people. And I think within that, various forms of oppression can be abated in some capacity. That doesn't eliminate all contradictions. So when I say this, just because we solve one contradiction, for example, of returning land as an end goal, I would hope that would happen tomorrow, right? It doesn't mean different contradictions won't uh, emerge, nor are they all solved. So I think when people are thinking about imaginations, it, it doesn't solve everything, but it's it's a sort of goal. So the go- those are sort of two goals for me. And how do we get there? You know, there are many answers. I don't even uh, have 
particular strategic ways about doing that, nor do I trust many academics, including myself, to be the the vanguard or leader of any sort of thing. That's up to um, the most vulnerable in our societies. But I think on the way, in what I call the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy, right now, it'd be useful a uh, few things. One, in exercising notions of tribal sovereignty, which frankly sometimes can be very liberal because they see their destiny tied up with the United States or Canada or different nation states. Mm. What would it look like if they just adopted, um, for example, Black people within their nations? So I'm Saginaw Chippewa. We have a clan system. I'm Bear Clan or Makwadodem. And Within the clan system, it delineates your responsibility to your nation and your people. The clan system is really about like family and responsibility. So I therefore have certain responsibilities and obligations. Historically, the Bear Clan uh, were the protectors and healers of the people. Modern times, it you know it varies kind of uh, how well that is followed into the present. But if we return to a clan system. What would it mean to, and there were, uh, I'm blanking on the clan, but there's a clan to, that was created to adopt outsiders, right? So what would that clan look like to adopt black people, for example? And then we can live on the land um, in a shared way, have mutual responsibility, have kinship. I often think about this feature as kinship is solidarity, right? And living a, in a good way, in a good life with human and non-human relations. And to me, that's that's sort of imperative. But you can't really do that without kinship. Um, and finally, what would it mean for Black elders, Indigenous elders, multi-generational groups of people sitting down, breaking bread, right? It could be gluten-free bread, whatever, <laughs> whatever sort of thing <laughs> people need. Uh, make sure the food is well-seasoned and so forth. Right. And, but sitting down and talking about our shared histories, struggles, some of the major differences, literally sitting down. And I, I don't think we um, do that enough these days, you know, for various reasons. COVID being one of them very recently, the uh, creation of social media. What would it mean? We, we watch things together. We read together. We share food together. We listen to things together. Um, and that to me develops forms of kinship. Well, you, <laughs> by birth and by consciousness, you are in a, you are in a very special place. And I want to, be, because of uh, some of the things that I would love for us to explore uh, during our, our moments here together, I want to take a chunk, uh, a paragraph from chapter five of your book and, and read this. Uh, because it's it really it's it's an introduction of who you are, and you wrote amongst among the most frustrating things I encounter are people's certain people's reactions to my work. The reactions have seemed to be stuck between two different responses. One is indigenous anti-blackness expressed as see black people can be racist too. They also assert that black Americans are settlers. Let's not forget that there was this thing called slavery. The second response by Black folks is to simplify the history of Black and Indigenous relations. 
they easily fall into the old line of, see, those Indians are racist too. They own slaves. I think some Native people have used my work to suggest that Black people are no better than white settlers. And some Black people have called me out for minimizing the history of Native enslaved Africans. As a Black and Indigenous person, I suppose I'm just Mr. In-Between, a brother without a home. All right. So <laughs> with that in mind, I, I, I wanted to ask you, if you have thoughts on ADOS, American descendants of slaves and and their vision, uh, that collective, I, you know, I joined uh, a Facebook group that ADOS has. And as soon as I got in, I read a few posts and I, I, I got in, I said something like, what about indigenous people? And they all but booted me out. You know, I mean, I, I mean, they came from every direction. And so uh, I just withdrew from from that group. So have you any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, um, this really gets into the, the conversation around reparations in particular. So I think there are two levels of reparations, sort of a mainstream discourse, and then what some folks are kind of imagining and trying to do on the ground. And ADOS in particular, what I found in uh, some of the species, their approach, is uh, really xenophobic. That is specifically against, for example, Latinx uh, folks who are often forced to migrate uh, to the U.S. And um, people from the African diaspora. There's the other term, which I argue a family about all the time, foundational Black Americans, which I, I don't really know what that means. Um, different differentiating themselves from people in the diaspora. But it's around reparations. So reparation is cash payment. Cal the state of California, of course, uh, has studied this. It begins tracing ancestry back to the 19th century. Uh, there's a very good example of some version of repertory. I don't want to call it justice, but some version of reparation uh, with the Bruce family being compensated for um, the Bruce's beach that was expropriated and usurped from them. Um, in 1926. And again, the most vulnerable in our society certainly need just money to just do basic things, right? Like that's, that's not the point. And I want to make that clear. I'm not saying the most vulnerable don't need basic things right now, housing, some food, diapers, all sorts of just very basic needs. Right. So that's, that's not what I'm talking about, but as an end goal, to me, reparations can't be about just replicating and entering uh, capitalism in a certain way. Because if capitalism's foundations are about two things, as well as U.S. democracy, the enslavement of people and the taking of people's land and various forms of ongoing oppressions related to that, why in the world would we want to replicate and be put into and contribute to that system? A system that only benefits really a, a handful, or we can literally say a handful of people. And in Evanston, Illinois, Asheville, North Carolina, the whole notion of reparations are centered on building black wealth. I, um, black wealth is not going to save one, the most vulnerable, but two, even just working people. Uh, there's a great report uh, that Sandy Darity and several folks did at um, an economic center at duke university i think it published 2018 because you know the myth of if black people pull their resources together 
keep the dollar in the black community. Therefore, we would all be wealthy and rich. Look at Black Wall Street, which was, you know, of course, uh, Muskogee Creek land and allotments and so forth, although that whole history is ignored. Um, then w- right. it would be better. But they clearly show, even if that happened, black people did not have the wealth of, not even a tenth of the wealth of, say, J.P. Morgan Chase, for example. So that, it's just a myth and impossible to actually pull off. So in other words, black wealth isn't going to save us. And finally, reparations... Where does it end? And I ask that to say, if the U.S., which can, maintains the largest military footprint in the world, and we think about the long history of them intervening, for example, in Haiti, uh, a so-called war on drugs, and disrupting whole countries, Iraq, very recently, in recent history. Um, I mean, <laughs> to try name almost any country that's not an ally around the world. Does the U.S. not owe those people reparations? And when Kirsten Mullen and um, William Darity say that the United States owes 15 to $20 trillion based on their calculations to formerly enslaved peoples, the U.S. ain't paying that. Let's be real. <laughs> this, this is yeah. not happening <laughs> at all. Right? So in other words, what are other ways we, can we imagine um, repertory justice is a question that I'm left with. Mm. So your answer to Carrie's question is, is questions. <laughs> you know what? As I, um, as I often tell my students, sometimes asking more questions is really some of the most important things to do because you, the more questions you ask, the broader, the more specific, then you get kind of new approaches to thinking about uh, the world we want to live in. Oh, and one last thing, ADOS. You, how can you talk about reparation without returning land? The right. five tribes enslaved peoples. Those five tribes of like 570, there are 569 federally recognized, unrecognized tribes by the uh, U.S. government, state-recognized tribes. Five who enslaved peoples. And that was even a minority amongst them. So, again, where does land fit into this notion? And it can't be private property. Mm. It, yeah, sometimes we equate territory and property. Uh, I, you know, there, there, are, there is that way of thinking that I think the colonizer mentality is, is, is that the land back demand and movement are something equivalent to to the West colonizing Palestine mm-hmm. and creating mm-hmm. a state. Um, what's the difference? So um, the land back movement is, is really about returning land, but it's also what I learned from the folks at Indian Collective. Shout out to Crystal Tubles and uh, Nadia Tanus, um, a Palestinian organizer. But what I learned from them and sort of the work that they have uh, done and are continuing to do in a variety of capacities is that it's a one, a political framework and idea that includes um, people of color, working class people, and so forth. Two, land back, it does mean literally returning land, but thinking differently about our relationship to land. So it's not mm-hmm. private property. It's, it's not committing violence 
uh, two people and just kicking them off the land. Although I also, you know, who knows what that looks like in another way, because people are not just going to give up private property. I think that history has shown us that that's true. Right. So it's, it's rethinking it's decolonization in its strictest sense of returning land, but rethinking perhaps returning to old ideas of holding land in common, or sometimes it's imagining something different and new about what we're, what would our relationships look like in relationship to land, to other humans and non-humans. So it's a double uh, approach that you have to take when thinking about the land back movement. And it's scary. I remember giving a talk in Indianapolis and this, uh, this woman asked me, so what does land back mean? And I was like, well, it literally means returning land. I started crying. <laughs> and but, no, she really did start crying. But, and I'm like, but it's not about you, right? And even people have to get, change their mentalities around. We can live together, not without contradictions, but you don't have, like, you don't have to think about it being something taken away from you. But instead, mm-hmm. allowing other people to live. It, it reminds me of Anita Simone when um, someone asked her what is freedom to her. She said, freedom is no fear. Imagine all of us, including the most vulnerable, can live in a society, be themselves, and uh, we have our basic needs met. Right? But some people fear that, though. Yeah. One, one of my favorite teachers in seminary, John Frankie, has a saying that I have kind of glommed onto. I always give him credit. I glommed onto it as my personal like motto because I just love it so much. And it's it's the, he calls the realm of God a place where everyone has enough and no one needs to be afraid. And I think that speaks mm. to to what you're talking about. Mark Charles, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mark Charles, but um, he's a Navajo teacher, um, and he kind of drove home that the, the same point that you were making a little a little while ago um, to me it, that really helped me understand the complexity of the issue in a way that I think as a white-bodied person, most white-bodied people don't really think about. When he, he basically said that the American dream has offered, you know, Black people this carrot that says you, you'll be free when you have your house and your, and your private property, right? Like the, the capitalist, um, when you can partake fully in capitalism, and and that those black people are never thinking about the fact that where did that land come from? Who who who's who did that land belong to before they were they were able to assimilate into the the capitalist uh, project, right? And I just I thought that that was that was that was an eye opening thought for me as again as a white bodied person who previously before I started diving into these topics I, I I had no idea and I think so many white bodied people just never think about this so we are I think as a people white bodied people are the most challenged as far as the imagination that it would take to because we have been so ingrained in this capitalist project mentality of getting our plot of land a chicken in every pot you know, our own pot, my pot, a chicken in my pot. <laughs> you have your own chicken over there. This is my chicken, right? And and we have no concept of what the collective or the communal might be and how that could work. We have been so socialized into the individualist. Even myself, I feel I feel that myself. Like I feel resistance sometimes to the collective because I feel like how am I as a woman ha- going to be silenced and squelched down, right? That's a big fear from of mine when I say, oh, we have to go back to 
a more communal, well, to me, that that reads patriarchy, right? So even though I know there are so many that were not patriarchal, but that's, those are some of the thoughts that come to my head as a, a white-bodied person. And I'm watching those thoughts go through my head and I'm trying to say, like, which ones are valid and which ones are not, you know? Um, which ones are socialized into me and which ones do I need to look at more, you know? Um, so I don't know. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to, to, to offer that because I think the capital, I think capitalism is such a, is, is a, is a thing that white-bodied people hold so dearly to. And uh, because we, again, we, we lack the imagination. So I'm back to the imagination again. Um, so yeah. anything that you can do to guide us toward imagination, I appreciate. Well, I, I, what I was struck by is um, thinking about the era of reconstruction. Right? So I've been rereading uh, Black Reconstruction and there's so many fan, you know, fantastic books and approaches to thinking about that period as uh, what Du Bois would call abolition democracy. And it was certainly that. But when you start looking at the issue of land during the period, how easily in the post-Civil uh, War era that even the radical Republicans, Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, they're advocating for giving land to black people. Uh, even William T. Sherman in his field order, I uh, can't remember it was 15, but when he's declaring certain lands in South Carolina all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, as uh, expropriated former plantation land, we should give that to black people, right? And he says in that that these black people are now can now be considered settlers in the sense that they're now entering the very notion of U.S. democracy, which is private property. And this whole, the idea of black belonging whether uh, trying to integrate, even trying to be separate, the notion of Black nationalism as a project of having the five southern states where Black people are exploited, it is, it's in a sense trying to figure out a sense of home or place or belonging, right? Some form of freedom and sovereignty, self-determination. And, but it just exists within the contradictions of this is the settler society, as well. I mean, and he, even when I hear someone like Aretha Franklin, the late great queen talking about, um, and, the, and there's a track uh, going down slow and she's talking about returning to her father in part. Yes. The gospel tradition, but it's also about some sort of returning home, trying to find home or even some of the literature of Toni Morrison and like flying away and those sort of things. It's not, it's home. It's about trying to a search for belonging, which um, is is difficult for for black people. Because sometimes I think integration can be overstated in a certain sense. There are some people who do, but there's just a long history of searching for home that I don't think uh, can be discounted, and we have to interrogate that idea even more, and, and as we're working toward this imagination as well. You know, when your book, you you cited, I mean, I was impressed by the book, but I mean, you you uh, you shouted out to Gil Scott Heron, you know, that, <laughs> you know, I mean, I grew that that's when I came of age, uh, you know, when, when that music was coming out. And when I when I hear of a younger person citing Gil Scott Heron 
I say, oh, they must have done some research. You know, I don't even know if that's music that you enjoy or what, you know, but uh, specifically, who'll pay reparations on my soul? Yeah. Uh, you know, can can you talk about that? Um, yeah, what was it? So I, I don't remember exactly where, but I I was hanging out with my uh one of my good friends and colleague, Bryce Henson, who's a professor of communications um, at Texas A&M University and does really cool work on Quilombismo in Brazil. But I think we were having some drinks and just, just like talking like we do. And um, for whatever reason, I don't even remember the kind. We started talking about Gil Scott Heron and then we're like, oh, this is cool, this and that. And then that song popped into my head. And then it was that moment and I was like, yeah like reparations and imagining a certain future and then the soul part like it's it's about a future but something that's both of the material conditions of black people but also metaphysically how can we sort of imagine something else so reparations of you know relationship yes. to the soul is is a bit deeper than i think sometimes we think and consider when considering a song. Yeah, it's something that uh, what you just talked about. It's there's something metaphysical along with having your needs met. And I, I think about you know I grew up you know closer to the era of the Great Migration. You know, basically our communities, you know, where we lived in California, in northern and southern California, were basically uh, migrant colonies from the south, and. Yeah. So we still lived that way to some extent as kids until we started growing up. And I remember like on Sunday, we went to church and church and church. And then we broke off and we ate together. You know, we had our greens and our cornbread and, you know, our head cheese and, and, you know, fried chicken and all of that. And then we came back and we had church again. And, and really our finest musicians were developed in that context. Uh, because yeah. church would last forever and they would get, they would develop their chops. People learned how to play the guitar or the saxophone in church. They didn't go home and learn. They didn't have teachers. They came and they just joined in and just till they, till they got better and better. And so that was community. And it seems like that's, that's something that I miss. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to go back to the poverty of it all, but I do want to go back to the communion of it all. Yeah, you're, I mean, I grew up in the black church, uh, so it wasn't just, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, there was Sunday school, there was Tuesday testimony service, <laughs> there was Wednesday night, then it turned into a prayer meeting on Thursday, youth something on Friday, uh, and I got sick of it after a while, I'm like, this is just too much, I got other things I want to do, <laughs> but, um, that, you, that you represented everybody, we got older and we felt like we needed to explore the world. Right. <laughs> and then you get called a heathen for that. But um, yeah, the, the black church and, you know, with all of its contradictions, I learned a lot about community. Um, certainly people develop certain skills. Like, I, you know, uh, I was in Boston recently and we were talking about, I don't know if any of you have seen the 500 greatest singers of all time list from the Rolling Stones. And, and, you know, of course, Aretha is number one. Whitney Houston is number two. 
And and there's some major controversy. It's just a great talking point with uh, friends over some wine or something. <laughs> but um, I was talking about like how music makes me feel, and something like, for instance, I am not a patriot. I, I'm pretty unabashed about that as at all. But like the national anthem, for example, I don't I don't celebrate patriotism like that at all. But the the way someone like Whitney Houston singing the national anthem Thank or you. Aretha singing America the Beautiful, it's less about being proud as an American than it is like, man, she's saying that. <laughs> like because <laughs> you can feel the music, the soul, yeah. the ancestors within that music. And so like you just want to tear up. And then I'm like, what am I doing? Ew, this is the wrong song to be cheering up on. Let me turn on Aretha's gospel <laughs> album. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell, and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole, or text 805-703-8393. Nine, three, because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.